Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. On this episode, we're going to take a closer look at the historic movement of plants between Africa and the Americas, using the example of African rice in Suriname. Our guest for the show today is Professor Tinde van Andel. She's a Dutch ethnobotanist at Naturalis Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands. She also holds appointments affiliated with the Wageningen and Leiden University. Her research focuses include wild plants used for food and medicine, traditional rice cultivation in the Guianas, and historical collections of useful plants buried in treasure rooms of herbaria and libraries. Listening to the stories behind useful plants helps her to discover people's unwritten history. And by documenting traditional knowledge on wild food plants and local crop land races, she tries to understand how people have survived on hunter gathering and self-sufficient agriculture in the past centuries. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Tinde. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Cassandra. Thanks for inviting me. It's yeah. Really and you're dialing in from where today? From Amsterdam, the Netherlands. That's great, that's great. Well, I was so excited to get you on this show because um, in a prior uh, podcast episode with, um, with Bruce Hoffman, we got very lightly into this topic of the Maroons, the Maroon people of Suriname. And he said, you know, you have to talk to Tende about this. And I'm like, you're right, you're right. She is the expert, especially when it comes to African rice and the movement of plants. Maybe let's start with who who are the Maroons um, in Suriname? Yeah, I liked, uh, I liked uh, to see Bruce talking uh, about an hour. I, uh, I had great fun because I met Bruce many times in the field uh, in Suriname and Guyana over the past decades. Uh, well, Suriname is a former Dutch colony in, the, let's say, northeastern South America, uh, bordering Brazil, um, where the Dutch created uh, from 1667 onwards a plantation society and sugarcane plantations. Mm -hmm. And the Dutch imported about 300 enslaved Africans, 300,000 enslaved Africans over 200 years, or 300 years basically. Uh, to work on the sugar uh, cane plantation in a very cruel um, system. And um, the plantations are located, used to be only located along the coast. And there is a hot savanna uh, below that. And behind that is the large Amazon rainforest. Mm. So because of their cruel treatment, many Africans decided to escape already when the first ships of Africans arrived, already people escaped directly, crossed that savanna, and behind there you have big rivers with very dangerous rapids. So big boulders, mm. uh, it's like um, in some of the amusement parks, but then 100 times more dangerous where you go wow. rafting, like the Colorado River, but then not orange. Mm -hmm. So it's very dangerous to go across these uh, rapids, but the Maroons managed to do that um, and nobody actually can cross that uh, if you do not have the skill to maneuver, uh, maneuver between these rocks. So mm. behind the, the um, rapids, the escaped Africans were sort of safe. So mm -hmm. the Dutch, they, they did send some military expeditions, but they didn't even make it across the savannah because they didn't bring drinking water. Mm. Or they got killed in the rapids. So wow. Enslaved Africans managed to um, settle in the Amazon and 
recreate traditional communities. I have to say this also happened in Jamaica and Brazil and other parts of the plantation societies, but there most of the communities were traced and people were killed or enslaved again or imprisoned. But also because of the geographical situation in Suriname, uh, the Maroons were very successful. And their descendants still live there today. Mm -hmm. There are about four different rivers and also about six different tribes who have now their own culture and their own language and music and traditions. And uh, nowadays they also live in the capital, but most of the people still live in rainforest communities. Wow. It's, it's just, I can't, I, it's hard to even fathom what that must have been like, that escape into the forest through these very difficult terrains, not knowing the landscape and, and being successful to reestablish other communities. And they also came from different regions of Africa, correct? So they also had their own different languages coming in. Um, yes, certainly. And the plantation holders did not group people from the same ethnic background on one plantation because then they could talk secret African languages. Mm -hmm. So um, it is a, a miracle, I could say, and these people were very, very brave and very skillful to escape in a rainforest that they did not know. But help, uh, what helped them was their African knowledge of plants and rainforest. As you know, the species are different in Africa, but the botanical families are sometimes the same. So people who arrived in Africa were mostly farmers, but also people who knew how to survive in rainforest. So, of course, there were many casualties, but substantial numbers escaped. Um, talking with each other, a sort of Creole language, which was partly English, partly Dutch, partly Portuguese, partly African. And learning how to survive in the rainforest. And they also brought crops. They stole crops or they took crops from the plantations and brought them in the interior and planted them there in shifting, shift and burn agriculture, shifting agriculture, slash and burn. Yeah. Wow. Well, and that's not the only place they, they were able to bring crops. The This work that you've done on the movement of African rice is just fascinating to me. Can you tell us a bit about this? Well, first, maybe what is African rice compared to the rice that we may be familiar with today in our in our pantries? Yeah, so the, the, the supermarket rice that everybody eats is Asian rice. It, it looks yellow or white and it's domesticated in China, like let's say uh, 10,000 years ago. But there's a separate species of rice, which is called African rice, which has dark brown husks and uh, red grains inside. Mm -hmm. And it's domesticated along the Niger River in West Africa around three or 4,000 years ago. But the Portuguese had already brought the white Asian rice in Africa before the first slave ships arrived. So when the slave ships came, African and Asian rice was cultivated in West Africa. Mm. But the slave ship, they had to buy food. So they bought uh, huge amounts of food, not only rice, but also uh, um, other African crops like sorghum, millet, palm oil, all these things. They they, they stuck them in the ship as food for their captured um, Africans. But if you stock rice, you we, they didn't have refrigerators, so they had to buy rice with the shell still, the husk still around it. That means that rice can ger germinate. Ah. 
So when you prepare rice, you take this African mortar and pestle and you stamp the rice so the husk uh, fell off, fall off, and then you have to uh, winnow it so the wind blows away the, the chaff and then you cook the rice grains. Mm -hmm. So what happened is that women, apparently in Africa, they were enslaved, they were probably very stressed out, but somehow some of them managed to take a little rice from their own rice field and braid it into their hair. Wow. Apparently that was already a sort of survival mechanism if somebody, um, if you have to move because of warfare or other stressful events, you can secretly bring some food, but you can also plant some seeds. So they must have done that, or they have taken the leftover seeds on the ship and braided it in the hair. But very soon after um, the ship, the first ships with enslaved Africans reached Suriname, uh, in the first herbarium collections made in Suriname, we already find okra and sesame, which are two African crops. So already with the first ships, the seeds came, and already with the first leftover seeds, people secretly uh, hid these seeds in the hair or elsewhere and started secretly planting it. And um, the first botanist who saw a plant of rice in Suriname, that was already 1755, he found it on a plantation, and he asked the plantation holder, are you growing rice? And the plantation holder said, no, we do not grow rice. We import it from South Carolina, USA. And then he wrote down, apparently rice is growing here, but the plantation holder doesn't even know. He probably thought it was some ugly grass. Or... And that made me thought, oh, there was somebody secretly growing rice without the owner of the, uh, the plantation knowing. Yeah. And then the next story is that women escaped again braiding it in their hair and then running into the forest because yeah, in the forest you need staple food. Yeah. And if you have a handful of rice, you have, still have to wait for a month before it's ripe, but and several women have done that. Wow. Several rice varieties carry the name of the woman still after 300 years, carry the name of the woman who did that. Wow. So the, the present day varieties, these, these slightly different varieties of African rice are named after these women. That's just fascinating. Yeah, How it's do you... African rice. So it's both the white, many types uh -huh. of the white Asian rice and a few of the black African rices. Yeah. Wow. And, and there are many women's names in rice and only for three rices. We know that that name of the woman was actually especially a woman who really escaped. For all the other women, I don't know. So maybe there are much more uh, rices named after these women, but we still have to ask the stories about it. Yeah. Well, this brings me to my next question. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how do you investigate these stories? Because you mentioned things that happened in the 1700s, and you mentioned herbaria, you're also looking at text. How, how does one even begin to investigate this deep botanical history? Well, of course, always first by accident. <laughs> so I was studying medicinal and ritual plants, which is sort of easy compared to crops. And then people asked me, did you find rice? And I said, no, I didn't find rice because I'm doing medicinal plants. Then I remembered I found a very little bag that they sold on the market of very dark rice that had to be offered to the ancestors. 
But I thought rice is rice, all the rice is the same. I didn't even know African rice existed. And then somebody in Wageningen said, do you know what you have here? This is African rice. And I thought, oh. And then people say, you have to read that book of, of Judith Carney, the, the American geographer uh, from UCLA, Black Rice, about the, um, the rice fields in South Carolina. And I thought, oh my God, I found this. And then people from economic botany said, do you, do you realize you have the smoking gun? And I thought, I just bought a of rice on the market. So I went back to Suriname with this grains of rice in my hand. And I asked my friends, Maroon friends, do you know somebody who grows this? And in the same village where I did many weeks of medicinal plant research, there was a rice field of black rice. And I never knew because I never asked a question. Yeah. <laughs> and then years later, I got in contact with this molecular um, uh, systematic people who said, but maybe uh, we can um, compare it to African rice and see where it comes from in Africa. And then at another economic botany congress, I met Rachel Meyer, who was doing research on African rice. And she said, give me the grains. Let's see where it comes from. And I thought, I guess there's nobody anymore in Africa after 350 years who still grows the same variety because there are hundreds of rice varieties. And then it took months. And then she emailed me and said, you know, I found his sister or her sister. And then we found in wow. Ivory Coast, in, in one little village in Ivory Coast, they had collected in the 1970s or something a rice that was very, very, very close to that one rice grain I found in Suriname. And now I understand why they offer it to the ancestor, because this was the ancestor rice. Wow. So wow. what many people see as witchcraft and, 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 and strange thing, obscure things that people do with offering, is actually, in fact, respecting your ancestors who helped you survive and giving a little bit of the food that you have preserved over the past 350 years. Yeah, that's amazing. Thought, this is only one rice grain and we have 200 more. So what I think is that the whole complex history of Africans of many different tribes and origins um, you, we can trace that history if you do the, the molecular research. That's just, I love, I love that approach to science because you're taking the, the written traditions, the, the, the botanical specimens that, that, you know, can be found, molecular approaches. And then you're also working locally interviewing people mm. in these communities about their, their thoughts and uses of, of these varieties. Yeah. And, okay. and, uh, so I, um, on field work, we, we search for people who grow rice. After I have done the medicinal plant research, I have contacts in some of the villages. So people are, are happy that I'm back. And then I, we interview people who have rice fields. And some people just grow rice because their mother did it and the grandmother, and they, they never think about it. And other people do have stories, and some are very symbolic. Mm. So... Like a journalist, you have to paste like 20 different stories together to get a coherent history. And then you try to dig into old sources and old herbarium specimens to see if you can sort of prove that. Yeah. Well, and 
Tende, do you feel like this tradition of of rice cultivation is one that that's going to continue or or is this at risk? Are are people still really dedicated to growing this or have they turned towards other crops recently? Well, the, the, the big problem is, is that nobody really researched, did, did thorough research on rice cultivation in the past. Mm-hmm. So it's very difficult if something is disappearing, if you do not know what used to be there. Mm. I, but the general feeling that, that I had before I went to French Guyana two years ago is that it's disappearing. And uh, because the only source you have are mostly agro agronomical reports of mm-hmm. agronomic engineers who say it's it's a bad cultivar, low yields, use fertilizer, no tractors, it's backwards, change it. Uh, so, and they sort of say, oh, it will die out by itself. And then anthropologists are worried about uh, the loss of traditional culture. So they're worried that the rice cultivation will go down. So we made an interview with all kinds of questions. Do you like res- uh, rice cultivation? What are your problems with rice cultivation? Are some rices more problematic than others? Why do you stop cultivating rice? Um, uh, do you use fertilizer? Now? And, and then to our surprise, Everybody who uh, we interviewed said, no, I like rice cultivation because then I have food for free. I have no problem. I don't use fertilizer. And sometimes it rains too much, so then I have this variety that grows well. And sometimes it's too hot, then I have that variety. And I just do it because my mother did it, my grandmother did it. And by the way, the shop rice is ugly and it's expensive. And it makes your belly, your belly is not full and you're hungry again. Because they also process the rice in a traditional way, so they, they, they get off the husk by hand. So the bran, like the dark mm-hmm. uh, little skin around the rice grain, what contains the fibers, the minerals, and vitamins, is still on it. It's like so old like, rice. Yeah, super nutritious then as yeah. well. Yeah. When you uh, buy supermarket rice, only the starch is left. So, mm-hmm. of course, if you eat your belly full of rice, you still are hungry. So, but then there is migration to the city in, in search of better education and healthcare. People migrate to the city, but there's still many people left in the village. And there are other voices saying that shifting agriculture is not sustainable. Well, it is, it is not sustainable if you have too many people, but if you have a limited amount of people and people are allowed to rotate their crops, it can be sustainable. So... I actually got a pretty positive view of the whole story. And when I heard these names of these women, that I thought these women have been doing that for 300 years and they didn't listen to the Dutch colonizers. They did that all by themselves. So they're not going to stop between now and tomorrow. Yeah. On the other hand, they could use a little bit more positive attention, I think. And they could use an extra source of income. So... I already have seen that giving a little bit attention to maroon rice already creates activities here and there that people start selling it and that they make a nice t-shirt saying maroon rice and then selling a uh, empty Coca-Cola bottle for a good price <laughs> market. So I see there is also potential to also sell it as a sort of upgrade culinary product. Yeah. 
And the story is in the rice. So it's also very important to preserve because the whole survival, a big part of the survival is in the rice and in the women also because it's only women growing it. Yeah. It's it's an amazing story of resilience. I, I think you're right. So it's like with each each time that you eat it, there's there's this rich history um, behind you it. You are what you eat. Yeah, yeah. It's nowhere more um, relevant than there, I think. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder, um, has there been any interest or any studies done yet on the nutritional makeup? I know that you've run your, with collaborators, looked at the genetic makeup, but I'm wondering how this compares. We, we still need to do those studies. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Yeah. I think when, uh, when I start doing field work again, hopefully next year with the Corona measurements easing up, I will be on the lookout for nutritional students who could simply doing a, a pot of shop rice and a pot of home mm -hmm. um, hand process traditionally. And then, mm -hmm. Yeah, and then see what are the difference in nutrition. Yeah, that's great. I have to be careful that it doesn't become a superfood that everybody is running. <laughs> well, that was that was the other question because I I was thinking of other kind of superfood products that have come out of the Amazon. I'm thinking in particular of acai um, and kind of the boom around that. And um, yeah, it's a tricky line of, of tr hoping to foster sustainable development and economic returns, but also being very aware of the, the stressors that places on the environment. That's, that's a really good point. Well, I know in addition to your work on rice, um, I'm a huge fan of your work on medicinal plants, especially medicinal plants for women's health. And since we're talking about women and traditional knowledge, I wonder if you could just share some of your insights from, from your work looking at um, traditional knowledge of, of women in this region. Yeah, we, uh, I, I did research also on medicinal plants and, and, and many medicinal plants are for female health and childcare. Uh, and I also got a grant some years ago to, to do the same research in, in, uh, in Ghana, Benin, in West Africa, and then in Gabon in Central Africa, where most of the Africans who now who were brought to Suriname actually come from. Mm -hmm. um, we, they also come from other countries, but they were too dangerous or too, uh, too difficult to do field work. But, mm -hmm. So when we were in Africa, I found a lot of similar plant uses and also similar plant names uh, for similar plants. And, and yeah, in female reproductive health, there's a lot of medicinal plant use, also because women have lesser access to healthcare, mm -hmm. and they have different ideas about fertility, infertility, and different ideas about child childcare. So there are lots of also ritual plans to make babies walk easy or to protect them from evil eyes. And there's lots of plans for female hygiene, um, Men regulating menstruation because they're sort of pretty tough menstruation taboos. You cannot cook, you cannot do this, you cannot go to mm. a party, funeral, wedding if you menstruate. So women are, are regulating the menstruation according to their own um, interests. Let me say that. Uh, which is, of course, in many conservative countries, not done. It's not something you can talk because that also includes, of course, uh, plans to uh, start menstruation when you're already pregnant, early mm -hmm. pregnancy, abortions, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, also because many 
women living in remote areas, there are these plants that can help you ease the birth so that you're not in hours and hours in contraction, but it goes pretty fast, which can also be a little dangerous. So there is also, it's not only healthy, all the plant use. Some plant use can also be dangerous. And that is what I we try to, to stress also in our research. Yeah, that's great. And I think what's... What's what's really amazed me is is this idea of how 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 people are able to go from one very different part of the world to another with completely different flora and sort out you you basically have to build a pharmacopoeia from the ground up um, unless they're able to glean knowledge from other native peoples in the region and I'm wondering. Um, how much of the maroon knowledge is, is derived based on what they observed or experimented with based on their African heritage um, and knowledge of those plants versus, and then did they also integrate practices of local indigenous um, groups? Uh, what is very difficult to trace back is how people discover plants because yeah. you were there and nobody keeps a logbook. By, in 1625, I found this weed <laughs> and I found this and I... However, other botanists do, but um, you don't know. So what we try to trace, how to, we try to trace it by looking at local names mm-hmm. from used by Maroons in Suriname and see what was the origin of these names. So luckily, some linguist helped me out. Um, but and then you can see that some names are come from indigenous languages, so mm-hmm. they must have communicated. With indigenous, and those are often plants that do not occur in Africa at all, not even the plant the family, not even something remotely similar. Then there are some very little Dutch names, uh, because Dutch plants don't grow in Suriname at all, and they they didn't really communicate that much. Mm-hmm. And then there are a lot of African names that are um, coming from many different African countries, many different languages, but often the same family or the same genus. So they have seen something. Let's say I'm from Saudi Arabia and I look at your Skype screen, I see a palm in the corner. Mm -hmm. I don't know that palm. It's probably a native endemic Atlanta (laughs) coconut. It reminds me of a date palm because that's the only palm I know because I'm from Saudi Arabia. And I see you and then I would... If I start using that palm and it has some fruits, then I would call it the Atlanta date palm or Cassandra's date palm. Okay. But I still use the word date because that's my reference. This is how it must have happened. But Mm -hmm. then thousands of times with many different people, many different plants, many different ethnic backgrounds. And that is what we traced a little bit. And we did not only find African names, but also translations of African names. So the original African name was lost, but the translation in Dutch Creole, there, there's a horrible weed in the Comelinesi in, in, in Africa. If you weed it out and you throw it on the garbage, next day it creeps back in your garden because it has these little mm-hmm. sides. And in, in Suriname, they call it Gado Dede Dan Mi Dede. It means God dead, then me dead. In other words, God have to die first before that weed finally is dead. <laughs> it cannot die. And then I was in Ghana and I thought, hey, this is stupid weed. I know this from Suriname. And I asked 
how do you call it? And it was a very long African sentence. So I said, oh, stop, stop, stop. I got my notebook word for word. I wrote it down. And I said, what does it mean? He said, when God dies, when God dies, then I finally died. And I thought, hey, <laughs> this is just the same sentence. It's just, it has been translated. Translate so and we found many of those things. Um, and it, that is very nice research because... Um, Every plant has a different story, but it's very logical. And if you're if you're a botanist and you, you like these things because they look very well, they, they were amazing. They had amazing plant knowledge. And I, in this cruel plantation society where many people died, I think the best botanist survived. Or those that followed a very good botanist. Yeah. Uh, oh, and absolutely. The ones communicate the botany. Yeah, and, and that was important for their survival in terms of food, medicine, um, shelter. There's just, it's amazing what they were faith able to do. Also, mm -hmm. religious faith, because you can imagine how scared you are if you escape from a plantation, how much stress that gives. Yeah. So there are a lot of magic plants that have like um, little, um, like bromeliads uh, mm -hmm. uh, that have a little water source, not only to drink, but also to offer a little bit to the gods. And they have now a very important uh, religious symbol because they said the gods had to leave us, lead us the way through the forest. Like every every crossing of a little river, they had to ask the African gods or the forest gods, shall we go left, shall we go right? Wow. And it's a very long story that anthropologists have written down, but the anthropologists sort of skipped all the plans <laughs> because it was too, too complicated. And then the botanists skip the crops because the crops are too complicated. <laughs> so now we go for the most complicated um, crop, rice. Yeah. It's also very small. But very easy to transport then with the raids. And I know that you you shared a video with me um, where there was a, a young woman that was illustrating how it's braided um, into the hair. I'll be sure to repost that with the episode because it's just so fascinating how they were able to do that. Yeah, and... And then, Cassandra, you see sometimes how easy it is to be an ethnobotanist because I read the story in Judith Carney's book. She's a uh, geographer, historian, and she had heard that this story was being told, but she never did fieldwork in the region. She had heard it from, from mm -hmm. other written sources or other sources. And then you think, well, this must have been died out already. So I just asked once to my interpreter, have you ever heard of people braiding rice in the hair? Oh, yes. Did you, can you do it in front of the camera? Of course. We didn't even practice. I just wow. gave her a bag of rice that we just from our seed collection. And she just talked in the camera, one take, told the whole story, and also talked that the many other seeds were also transported in the hair, which is logical. I mean, yeah. pumpkin, papaya, um, all this stuff, all this African sesame, Okra, everything can go in your hair. It's amazing, amazing. Well, but this really, this really speaks to how how important it is to continue with field work. Um, sometimes we get questions at the vet. Well, haven't we documented everything? No, what? no. <laughs> there's there's a lot, <laughs> a lot of no. nuance. And, and, and most, especially in the in the colonial plantation society, all the history have been written down by old white white males. Because they were the boss of the plantation and they knew the history. And the oral history, especially of, of black Americans and also uh, 
especially of rural people there, has never hardly been documented, sometimes by anthropologists. But then it's never about plants. Yeah. So I, I'm really indebted to all the anthropologists, but I, I'm skipping their work and I, I never meet a plant. So, but then the, the people have so much to tell. And, and it's, it's also a very sad history, of course, a very brutal society. But if you talk about plants, people love to talk about plants. So it's, it's sort of easy to, to put the, the sad history in a plant and then talk about the plant. And then it makes it also easy for people to talk about slavery because it, of course, it's also a taboo item because mm -hmm. it's a very painful history. Yeah, of course. But if you talk about plants, you know, you it will never make you sad. So it's it's a sort of vehicle to tell a story in which nobody gets political, is my yeah. experience. That's great. That's great. Well, what are your plans for future work in the field, Tinde? I know that you're you're you've got active studies ongoing in the region. Well, I'm waiting for the corona to be over, yeah. just like everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and then I would like, to, and I'm going back uh, to Suriname, and I will recruit um, in the coming months a PhD student to go with me. Great. Do the field work and interviews because there's lots of rice, lots of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, also a postdoc to do the hardcore genetic work. Great. So for anyone listening, keep an eye out for these job uh, advertisements coming advertisement. soon. I, we, we, we didn't do that yet. I mean, the money just came in, which is still a secret, but the money just came in. So I have to formulate the job, but it will, it will be coming. That's wonderful. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, one other area of your work that I wanted to touch on, um, which may not be all you know, directly tied to Suriname, but on the broader scale of the history of plants, is your work on these very old herbaria and also very old herbal text. I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about the types of collections that you have at Leiden and, and what sorts of research you can do um, with these historic uh, records. Yeah. I have to say that I'm not doing all the research myself. I have good mm -hmm. PhD students and MSc students and fantastic postdocs because this is really difficult research. But yeah, um, Leiden University was already created in 1583 or something. I hope I say the right day. <laughs> so the, the big, uh, yeah, the big botanists were there and also for the next 200 years, including Linnaeus and Clusius and Boerhaave. So they have collected a lot of plants themselves, but they also um, obtained collections by others. Mm -hmm. So the real scientific botany started in Italy in the Renaissance in 1550. And they made this book Heberia. They invented that you could preserve a plant by, by pressing it in a very big and heavy book with paper. And they were given to uh, emperors and kings but then, you know, Europe, people started warfare and killing each other and robbing people's treasury and then sending it to Sweden. And then Swedish guy got acquainted with a Dutch librarian and took it back home and died <laughs> and sold it. And it ended up in Leiden, uh, in enormous treasure rooms. So we have this, this very old Heberia where the names are sometimes in Greek in Latin, some local names, and I have a very good Greek postdoc who, who deciphers that all. Mm. But all these botanists worked together. They, they were so excited and they, they were corresponding and one was collecting the specimen, the other one was drawing it, the other one was uh, describing it, the other one was writing about it. 
the other one took it to the, the garden. So they have this correspondence and you can sort of trace uh, wow. who collected what and who brought what there. Um, it's very difficult, but it's, it's also fun because we work with historians and with handwriting specialists and watermarks in paper. And so it's sort of a uh, detective work. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And there's also a rice collection, but it's the um, risotto in Italy. Ah. It was already there in 1560. Wow. 1560 risotto. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And you, I know um, at Naturalis, you have this amazing room also that um, when I came to visit a number of years back, I, you guys oh, gave yeah. me a, a sneak peek. And I was just, I was so excited because it's just, uh, if you can envision this room with lots of little jars of different bits of plants and jars of alcohol and formaldehyde and i i almost squealed with excitement because these are these go back centuries um of yeah. collections of yeah. of important plants yeah yeah as you know we have a colonial history and we searched in every country where we went we searched if there was something valuable that we could use to make money so there yeah, thousands of little glass jars in our special economic botany uh, collection with, with coffee beans and tea leaves and strange medicinal barks and illegible labels. <laughs> uh, some weird seeds that you could use to kill tigers in Indonesia and some, some rice that they tried out in Suriname in 1932. And we have so much that, you know, a lot, it's now being digitized and organized. Mm -hmm. But a lot of boxes had never been opened. Wow. So a year back, I took a screwdriver and I opened a wooden crate from 30, 1932 that was sent from Suriname to the Netherlands with bunches of rice and the dust just oh. threw <laughs> my face, in my nose, everywhere. And there were big bunches of rices that they have tried out at an experimental station sent to the Netherlands in 1932 and nobody opened the box. Wow. So, yeah, it's there, and it deserves to be studied. Um, Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Well, for, um, for students that may be listening and that are interested in pursuing these kind of interdisciplinary studies that bring together the botany, history, um, integrating linguistics, genomics, what is your advice to them as, as, they, as they think about how to, how to craft their, their studies? Well, I, I grew up in between bi biologists and, and also taxonomists. Mm -hmm. And I also always thought when I was young that I could not be a scientist because I was not so interested in super nerdy taxonomy or molecular stuff or lab work. So I thought, yeah, maybe I'm not a scientist. And I have to say that the, the Society of Economic Botany opened my eyes and I, I saw so many people, including you, who do such cool things that I thought, hey, it is science and there are people good at this and even better than me and I can look up to them and, and mm -hmm. copy them and get inspired by them. They're just not there in the Netherlands. But that doesn't mean that ethnobotany is not science. Yeah. So I, I got a solid training in botany and biology, but just the plant alone is just too boring for me. So <laughs> I, I, from you guys at Economic Botany, I learned how to do research in Economic Botany. And I tried it out. I made many mistakes and I, you know, just try things out in the fields. And then you get professionally trained by yourself, by going to congresses. But I 
can give the advice, do what you really like. Don't yes. push mm -hmm. yourself in a pigeonhole. You should be taxonomist or you should be that. Uh, what you like can also be science. And you have to fight for it because if you submit a grant proposal, you do not fit in any pigeonhole. Yeah. And that is a problem. On the other hand, if you are the only one doing that and you advertise it nicely and you make other students uh, uh, interested, then you become your own pigeonhole. <laughs> like Google. And everybody goes in that pigeonhole. But, you know, it doesn't always... You have to fight to become your discipline. But, uh, yeah, you search all over the world for inspiration and training. You don't have to stick to your own university or your own classroom or your own teacher. And um, Yeah, that's great. Well, I know you've been such an inspiration and amazing mentor to so many students and trainees over the years. So it's, it's, it's great to see how, and in the past, in ethnobotany, it was primarily a male-dominated field. So it's great to see... Um, women training other women and, and men um, in the field and, and teaching these interdisciplinary techniques. It's really great. Yeah, and because they were all men, they only spoke to other men. Yes. <laughs> women, which you could say that's sad and that's bad. And they only talk to important men and you could say anything about it. But what it leaves for us ethnobotanists, female ethnobotanists is a gigantic field Mm -hmm. of female knowledge and they are the ones who are farming and caring for the children and making the medicinal plants potion having the stories and nobody ever bothered to write down so yeah. there is enough to study and where you could also do something that nobody else did because nobody bought it that's great yeah well it's a it's a wide world of lots to document and lots to investigate and um yeah Really great. Well, thank you so much, Tinde, for coming on the show. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you, Cassandra. It was nice to see you again. I hope you're doing fine there in Atlanta. Yeah, we're hanging in there. I, I'm also dreaming of the field. I've been writing grants for field work. I think it's just like I'm, I'm dreaming of being back in the forest. Some of your dreams come, tr come true. Yeah. Well, you've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find copies of all of our episodes at our website, which is foodiepharmacology.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to click that subscribe button. And lastly, if you want to see the video of this and other episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel and check out the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.